I'm Jane Palmer. And I'm Joel Parker. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, December 23rd, 2014. Coming up, science on top of the world. We hear about glaciers in the Himalayas and the impact of pollution. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Polar bears, coral bleaching, starfish wasting disease. Bad news for biodiversity seems the rule. But last week, a group of ecologists based in Sweden reported good news in the journal Science. Europe's large carnivores are making a comeback. Using a data set consisting of past and current surveys, the researchers found that sustainable populations of brown bear, Eurasian lynx, gray wolf, and wolverine persist in roughly one-third of mainland Europe. Amazingly, populations of all these species are surviving and increasing outside protected areas. The scientists argue that coexistence with humans is possible because of improved public opinion and protective legislation. Researchers announced this week that a new vaccine prevents a brain-destroying condition in deer known as chronic wasting disease. The vaccine has been tested successfully on captive deer at Colorado State University. Researchers predict that this vaccine might protect not only deer, but livestock that are at risk for a species jump that could eventually trigger mad cow disease in U.S. cattle. In addition, the vaccine might someday help people at risk for prion, disorders, including some forms of dementia. Chronic wasting disease is a fatal brain disorder that's now rampant in North American deer. It's caused by a dangerously distorted protein called a prion. Normal prions help the body mop up free radicals. Distorted prions damage healthy tissue and transform normal prions into a horde of free radicals that increase destruction exponentially. To make the new vaccine, First researchers observe that chronic wasting disease begins when deer eat something infected by distorted prions. Usually, when these distorted prions reach a deer's gut, they quickly leak into the circulation and overwhelm the immune system. So the researchers decided to give the deer's immune system an early warning. They selected a common gut microbe, salmonella. Into the salmonella, they inserted a distorted prion-like protein. In the captive deer at Colorado State, this re-engineered prion salmonella triggered early production of antibodies. These antibodies attack distorted prions before they get out of hand, preventing chronic, chronic wasting disease. The researchers predict that by vaccinating 10% of deer within a herd, they might trigger immunity for the entire herd. They hope their research will also lead to protection against prion disorders for livestock and people. No methods currently exist for the early detection of Alzheimer's disease, which affects one out of nine people over the age of 65. Now, scientists and engineers from Northwestern University have developed a non-invasive approach that can detect the disease in a living animal, and it can do so at the earliest stages of the disease, well before typical Alzheimer's symptoms appear. The research team developed a magnetic 
resonance imaging, or MRI probe, that can map the brain toxins responsible for the onset of the disease. In the MRI, they can see the toxins attached to neurons in the brain. This ability to detect the molecular toxins may one day enable scientists to spot trouble early and design better drugs or therapies to combat and monitor the disease. Details of the new Alzheimer's disease diagnostic were published yesterday in the journal Nature Nanotechnology. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jane Palmer. Some scientists conduct their experiments in a laboratory. Think clean white walls, artificial lighting, AC, and a convenient coffee pot not far away. Not so for Ulyana Hovodaisky, a graduate student at the University of Colorado. For the last few years, she's been looking at glaciers and the lakes on top of them in Nepal. Last year, she spent a year looking at how pollution affects glaciers high in the Himalayan mountains. She hoped to set up the ultimate high-altitude laboratory on the oxygen-thin slopes of Mount Everest, but a fatal accident intervened. She's here today to talk about her race- latest research, Himalayan glaciers, and what it's like to do science at the top of the world. Welcome, Holiana. Thanks so much for having me. So, Oliana, last week you were presenting your latest research at the American Geophysical Union Conference. Can you tell me a little bit about that research? What is it that you're trying to discover? Right, so this was my primary research objective, which is looking at how supraglacial lakes are growing in the Himalaya. And supra means just on the surface of the glacier. So they're not only expanding aerially, but they're also deepening. So really want to understand that process of growth and see if there's going to be a flooding hazard for the villages down valley. Oh, so is that really why we should care? Because, I mean, you know, why do we care about the, these lakes? Do they, do they result in flooding? For people? Yes, uh, that's one of the biggest issues, actually. And there are a few big lakes. Uh, they're called the Imja and the Choropa, which have outbursts in the, in the past. But the Nongzumpa, this glacier where I work on, the lakes are in the transitional phase, and so we're trying to really understand the physics governing that growth and try to predict before anything happens. And that way you can warn people. Exactly. Right. So have you found any interesting results so far? Yeah, it's actually, um, we've had a combination of techniques to, to understand this. It's a combination of time-lapse photography, buoys that measure water levels, as well as meteorological stations tracking conditions. And one of the most surprising results was how much of a change some of these lakes go through. I mean, plus or minus 10 meters, so 30 feet, sometimes overnight, refilling and draining. And you find that out by the time-lapse photography. Where do you put these cameras and how how do you actually... (laughs) put them. That's the tricky part. Uh, It's sometimes you can't really get down onto the surface to an area that you trust because there's landslide activity, the the glacier moraine is collapsing. So sometimes you go on um, and put it onto a cliff, you drill it in, or I build a cairn, a rock pile around it. And sometimes I have it on a tripod, but believe it or not, even at 5,000 meters, around 15,500 feet, there's birds. And so I've had them land uh, on on the cameras and sometimes obscure the lens. Oh, no. What sort of altitude are you working at? 
specifically? The majority was at 5,000 meters. Uh, that's right. where I had my base camp. But I actually made it up to just over 6,000 meters, so about 20,000 feet. Okay. And so last year you went to the Himalaya to study these lakes um, some more, but something happened. So you didn't end up studying these lakes last year. Right. So uh, last October, I was taking um, a, a friend up to the glacier to explain what the research was. He was an engineer, very interested in the science. So all excited for this trip. And then a cyclone from the Bay of Bengal uh, crossed over and hit the Himalaya and left about a meter of snow in its wake. And so we have pictures of us trying to swim essentially through the snow to get to the lakes. It wasn't happening. We only had about maybe an inch of ice. So I was like, well, what could we do? I, I don't want to disappoint you know, my team. And so we set up a station to actually track snow reflectivity. So albedo and how much um, dust and black carbon might be affecting that. But that's not what the reason uh, for, for setting that up. It was just to track weather conditions. But I found out through sampling that the snow is actually really dirty, a lot more than I expected. And so what would dirty, I mean, who cares about dirty snow, really? What, <laughs> what will it do? Right. So it's similar to the problem we have here in Colorado, where you have any dust falling on snow. These are dark particles that are going to absorb more solar radiation, heat up that snowpack and cause it to melt more than it otherwise would. Right. So it, it could that result in flooding as well? That's more of an issue of affecting glacier growth at its accumulation zone. So if you think about a glacier being made up of two parts, the ablation is where all the melting happens in the lower altitudes. And the lakes that I study, that's where they exist. The accumulation zone is where the glacier grows. And so if you're melting that snow, you're, you're limiting the amount of snow available to grow new glacier. Right. And so then you start, then you turn the focus of your research onto this sort of dust on snow, dirty snow, how much pollution is going on in snow. Right. And what sort of time of year was that, that you changed your focus to that? Right. So that started in October based off of the cyclone. And then I continued whenever I could uh, climbing high peaks. So in December is when I did a 6,000 meter peak and discovered similar uh, processes at play much higher than where I'd sampled, which is really surprising as well. And so that kind of formulated this idea, well, let's go even higher. Let's go to Everest and Lhotse. And so we actually bought the permit through this American Climber Science Program, which is a, a climber scientist volunteer program. And it was a way to really get to 8,000 meters and see, well, what kind, I, I have 5,000, I have 6,000, let's keep going. Right. So when were you actually planning on going up Everest? So that was planned for April and May. And I had a team of five and we had also Sherpa, Tamang and Gurung, a lot of ethnicities that are working with us together. Because one of my goals during the Fulbright was to work with the locals closely. And so I formed the Sherpa Scientist Initiative towards that end. So can you tell me something that the, the Sherpas do? How, how do they get involved in the science? Right. So since the beginning, I've had them along on expeditions. I've taught them about how to set up cameras, where are good locations, downloads. But it's more than just helping set up equipment or carrying things. It's more actively involving them in the research, showing them the photos and the data and what does that actually mean and how they can continue this into the future. Once my PhD is over, I don't want the project to end. Right. So are there shippers out there right now who are collecting data? Uh, at the moment, no, but I do one more training next year. Um, I have to still turn over some equipment in the form of computers and sampling equipment. Um, but we have done trainings uh, every month that I've been out there. Um, but at the moment, we have to still wait um, to get more equipment. Okay. But this trip, this trip up Everest, it's didn't take place, did it? And why was that? Unfortunately not, because on April 18th, there was this ice serac collapse. So there's a hanging glacier on the left side of the route of the ice fall. 
And there was actually a backlog because one of the ladders had collapsed. And so unfortunately, early in the morning, uh, that collapsed and killed 16 people on impact. Right. And that included one of your party. Yes, and that, his name was Asman Tamang, and it was his first time through the ice fall. Young hire, 26 years old, and he had you know a young wife and a, and a daughter, and so it just it devastated our team. We were one of the smallest teams on the mountain. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of big expedition commercial groups, and we're like a group of 12 people. So, and you had to make the decision to turn around then, didn't you? Right. Essentially, all the expeditions were leaving, uh, and base camp became a ghost town essentially, uh, and just. Our team knew that we're doing science and conservation work, but we couldn't in good conscience continue on with the climb. So that's when we decided to turn around and then choose something else. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jane Palmer, and we're talking with University of Colorado scientist and mountaineer Oliana Howardaisky, who for the last three years has been conducting perilous experiments on glaciers in Nepal. So you turned around, but you didn't actually come home at that point. What was your decision then as a team? Yes, as a team, we had this grant and we still were all around for about two more months. And so we thought, well, what's a good equivalent peak that's on the Nepal-Tibet border? And so we decided on a peak called Himlung. And so that's up the remote Narfu Valley. So it's between Mount Everest and the Annapurna region. And essentially, it's like the Badland topography. That's how you can imagine it. <laughs> Very interesting okay. trek in. <laughs> right. How long did it take you to trek in? The trek in only took a few days because we were already pretty acclimatized. Uh, it was incredibly dusty. That's one of the, the things I noticed that was different from the other regions. Um, and it's also not just straight uphill. It's up and down, up and down for about mm, 30 miles or so. And okay. it snowed the day before our approach, which definitely made the, the trails a lot slicker. Okay, so tell me a little bit about doing science at high altitude. I mean, I can imagine, you know, I've done some altitude mountaineering, but it really is like hard work just coming your pack. It is. I have, I've had teams uh, in the past, which can go anywhere from three people to seven people. Well, sometimes I'm by myself out there managing my equipment. And so I have this portable laboratory on my back, 20, 25 kilos, depending. And I just listened to some footage from the last expedition. I realized I sound so breathless, but I don't feel that when I'm there. I think I'm normal. And so you just don't realize how difficult the work is to breathe, like you say, but also to think and be clear about your science objectives when you're up there. Does, does, does the pace of everything slow down? Definitely. Does it, does it just become the new normal? It is the new you normal, know? exactly. You wake up with the sun, you figure out on a checklist what's the plan for today, you adjust for weather, and then you see what happens. <laughs> and do you, I mean, can you sleep? Can you eat? You know, I... It's you tough. Uh, at the above 6,000 is when it really gets tough for me to eat. So I had a pretty good appetite throughout. But in the last expedition, I had a bag that was rated to minus 18 Celsius and it hit about minus 20. So it's definitely not comfortable. Um, but that was not anticipated because again, another cyclone hit this past October. And the nights were the worst for me because, you know, you're sleeping on the ground, it's cold, you're thinking, you know, what's happening next. And it's, it's a lot of stress, both physical and mental. And you had responsibility for your team as exactly. well, Exactly. I'm exp- responsible for the safety and well-being of the team. And that's why it hit me so hard what happened on Everest. You know, it's an accident. Accidents happen, but you still feel that responsibility, that burden. Right. And then you also had an accident to a member of your team on Himlung, didn't you? Can you tell me a little right. bit about that? So on Himlung, uh, so that's an interesting peak. It's about 23,000 feet, so just over seven 7,000 meters. 
And we could just see the root turning to slush before our eyes. I mean, in a week's time from the new snowfall, there was so much dust on the surface that it was just turning dark before our eyes. And as a result, that makes the snow very slushy and difficult on the vertical parts. And so our team was reduced to three people at that point. And um, we set up two camps and we're on our way to set up a third when two of us went back down to the base camp to resupply to rest, it's pretty exhausting. Uh, we didn't have any more Sherpa support because there's no money. And so we're carrying all our loads. And so that's, that's really difficult, despite being acclimatized. And what ended up happening is our team leader was sampling around the camp and um, fell through a snow bridge. And so what that is, it's this very small covering over a crevasse. Sometimes it'll hold, um, but because of all the freeze thaw and all that dust that was falling on the snow, it just gave out. Okay, and what happened to him? So he fell about 20 meters, so 70 feet down, and then had to climb out. We had no idea there was an accident. All our radio gear was still tied up on Everest. There's a huge backlog of all the expeditions coming down, so we didn't have everything that we needed, and we didn't think we would. You know, And that's when, when you think accidents aren't going to happen. Back to back like that, about a month after, I mean, the chances of one accident are pretty slim, but two. That really shook me. You know, yeah, it's just... Sure. And you didn't come out of the year on skate yourself, did you? Did you? You had an accident right. early uh, on? Yeah, so the terrain is really rough. And one of the biggest things you worry about is, are you going to sprain an ankle or are things going to collapse? But for me, this happened last September. So it was one of my first expeditions out there for that year. And I was attempting to take flow measurements. So this is essentially where all the water leaves the glacier. And you're trying to figure out how much quantifying that. So I had two teammates on shore holding a rope. And I'm pulling along the rope and um, taking measurements and then... Something happened with the instrument. I got distracted and the boat flipped. And so you're falling into water that's about two degrees Celsius, 34 Fahrenheit, and about a meter per second, so three feet a second. And I'm holding onto the rope. I knew I was going under, and I held my breath. And it, I have never felt so cold in my life. I just couldn't believe the shock of that. And I could just feel my muscles starting to give and, and wanting to release the rope, but fighting with everything I had to, to, to survive because about... Oh, I don't know, maybe 50 meters away were these huge rapids. If I let go, it's over. Right. So that was a really scary moment for me. But fortunately, if it had to happen, it happened early enough in the seasons where I really changed my safety protocols and my my risk aversion was a lot higher. <laughs> Probably so, helped you survive the exactly. year. Exactly. I think it really changed something in me mentally, too, that, you know, the science is great, but you have to survive in order to do the science, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Safety. I first. mean, does this make you question your science at all? You had quite the year last year. I don't question the science. I think it's a testament to what's changing. And I'm there to document it. And that's a privilege. But I have to keep myself safe first and foremost in order to do that. Yeah. And you're very committed to science in the mountains, aren't you? Didn't you come back from this trip and then go and teach for a semester in Washington State? Can yeah. you tell me a little bit about that? So this is called the Girls on Ice program, and it's run through the University of Alaska Fairbanks by uh, Dr. Erin Pettit. And she had won a National Geographic uh, Emerging Explorer Award. And I found out about this call for a new instructor when I was abroad. And I tried desperately to interview via Skype or email, but it wasn't really working with the bandwidth. And so I found out I got the job soon after the Everest accident. And so it was just something to look forward to in a dark time. And what it did is it brought nine girls into the mountains uh, to teach them not only about climbing and safety and mountaineering, but also about science, high alpine science, and really experiential learning, which is an amazing opportunity to see these girls just 
really remove themselves from their comfort zone and just watch them grow in that time. And it was neat to be a part of that. And did that help you in some ways assimilate what had happened, come to terms with what had happened the year before? It had. It really brought it full circle because I realized why am I doing this? And it's because I'm really interested in the future generation. You know, I think we really need to care. You know, our generation needs to care about what happens next. We can't think short term. And so that really helped me realize why I love what I do and how I can pay it forward. Right. And you paid it forward through the science and um, scientist Sherpa program. Right. And is there any way that you intend in the future to pay this forward? For sure. I mean, this is not the end. I mean, the PhD is a stepping stone. I, I, I hope to have a long career out in the Himalaya. As have actually a new expedition coming up in the remote Zanskar region of the Himalaya, which is in the northwestern corner of India. And I'm working with a guide team called Himalaya Alpine Guides, and they're really keen on learning about the science and really off-the-grid mountaineering, which is what I'm trying to transition to. Right. So you're finishing up your PhD right now. And how do you see yourself working in the future as part of a part scientist, part mountaineer, part educator? <laughs> it's hard, right? It's like where I've created this niche, but where do I go from here? And um, I like the blend of industry, so technology and academia and research and guiding. Uh, and so if that means making my own company, great. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to be going off on my own for a bit post PhD, you know, on off the grid mountaineering and really hoping to get inspired in the majestic Himalaya hoping that an idea comes comes to mind. Wonderful. And um, and you've also talked about doing some writing, haven't you? Yeah, I'm definitely keen on writing for uh, young women especially uh, so they can get excited about science. And the thing I've done throughout my years in the Himalaya is what I call it's adventure science, essentially, right? You're having an adventure, you're going out to these amazing places, but you're also doing the science. And I really want young women to see that it's possible, you know, and I've done it and hopefully people follow my footsteps. That's totally inspiring. Thank you so much, Oliana. Thank you so much. We've been talking with University of Colorado scientist and mountaineer Oliana Hordaisky, who for the last three years has been conducting perilous experiments on glaciers in Nepal. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producers are Jane Palmer and Kendra Kruger. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett and Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the soundtrack of the IMAX film Everest. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Jane Palmer. You are listening to KGNU, Boulder, Denver, 88.5 FM, 1390 AM, and everywhere around the world from the bottom of the ocean to the top of the Himalayan peaks at kgnu.org.